Well, again, as you can see, we're going to be talking about the tabernacle. Um, but again, just want to introduce myself. If you're, you're new to the church, you might not know who I am. Um, my name is Josh Schaefer, and I'm the worship pastor here. So if you came this morning looking for the, the rocket scientist who preaches at Central Assembly, that is not me. <laughs> so you, are, you will be disappointed this morning. But Pastor Jim does send his greetings from, again, as Pastor Josh said, he's, he's traveling this weekend and will be back um, next week. But again, we just want to thank Pastor Jim. We've been here seven months now and are so grateful for you opening your hearts and homes to, to Kena and our family. Uh, it truly does feel like home, and we're so grateful to be on this incredible staff. So um, Pastor Jim has asked me to, a, to do a continuation of the mini-series we started last week with Todd Marshall on worship. So Todd, last week, if you haven't, weren't able to watch that service online or in person, again, go to our YouTube channel. Um, it would be great, just an introductory message to even to what I'm continuing today, but it was fantastic and, uh, and just looking forward to continuing that pattern of wor worship that he started. He kind of tied worship and relationship together and really kind of led us through that, through that progression, if you would say, of how worship and relationship tie hand in hand, and that we first experience revelation, then we have our response, and then God's response. That's what Todd outlaid for us. First, we have, we have to worship from revelation. We need to have a revelation of who God is. Then we respond to that, and then God responds to us. And that's, that's the cycle we have. And in regards to ministry, Pastor Jim often tells our staff that there's a marriage that needs to take place between excellence and anointing. There needs, to be, there needs to be a marriage between excellence and anointing. And Mark Batterson in his book, The Circle Maker, says this, work like it depends on you, pray like it depends on God. I think that takes it to the next level there, explaining. Work like it depends on you, pray like it depends on God. So we can do all we can in the way of preparation and bring our best in the form of excellence, but God has to come along that and bring anointing to it. And I believe in the area of worship, we need a marriage as well. We need a marriage as well. And that's a marriage of purpose and presence. We need to marry purpose and presence. We need to know how and why we worship and find identity and purpose in that. So then when his presence comes and dwells in us, that we can experience that worship to the fullness. It can take us to that next level uh, in worship with the Lord. Jeremy Riddle in his book, The Reset, says, the less you know about God, the harder it is to worship him. Do you believe that? The less you know about God, the harder it is to worship him. And especially as Pentecostals, we can sometimes times lean heavy towards that presence side of this marriage and lean more towards the sensing, the feeling, the emotional weight of God's presence that we feel. But we need to be fully aware that we need purpose to combine with his presence to really receive that fullness of what God wants to do in us and as we worship him. So just as Todd shared last week, we need revelation before we can, res before we can respond. That we need to know why we lift our hands. Because he's unfailing. That's what Psalms tells us. Because of his faithfulness. Because his, his, his words are better than life. If we don't have that revelation, what are we responding or worshiping to? So today, that's why we're going to look at the purpose. The whys, the hows, the calling we have to worship. And then some of our expressions and postures of that as well that we find in Scripture. And then, as we've, we've heard, the journey of worship through the tabernacle, we're going to kind of do a, a back and forth of singing and teaching as we, as we walk through the tabernacle and the journey this morning. 
So let's stand together if you're able to, to read, as we read God's word this morning. And that's going to come from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, and then verse 9. This is what it says. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Let's pray this morning. God, we're thankful that you have called us priests, that you have chosen us, God, to be your chosen generation, to bring praise to you. God, I just pray that you would open our hearts, our minds to hear and understand your word this morning. Allow that revelation to just fuel our response in praise unto you as we come to those moments this morning. Thank you for this opportunity to share the word. And again, pray that, that you just use this service to make impact, that we would experience your fullness as we marry that, that posture and, and the process with your presence, God. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. You can be seated this morning. How many of you now that we have read that scripture are thinking of that old chorus in the 90s? For you are a chosen generation, a royal. Yeah, yeah, okay, I hear a couple of you guys going there. So every time I read that scripture, I think of that and how those times of worship we clapped on one and three. You know, for you are a chosen. And now we clap on two and four. It's, it's progressed a little. The progression has taken place. But no, it always brings back fond memories of, of my childhood reading that scripture. But today I want to help you realize the high calling that each of us have. He has given this calling to every one of us who claim faith, who profess faith in Jesus. As a believer, he has given us this high calling. Not just those who lead on the front of the stage or sing in the choir or play an instrument from the platform. But this is a calling that every believer has. This scripture says that we are all being built into a spiritual house to be royal priests, chosen by God to proclaim his praises. So that's my first point this morning, is that we are all priests, all believers. Look at your neighbor this morning and say, you are a priest chosen by God. Now act like it. No, I'm just kidding. You don't have to say that. You don't have to say that. <laughs> you don't have to say that. All right. So, but we are all priests that are chosen by God. And in a moment, we'll find out why this is so significant. Why being a priest, being called a priest is so significant. So we're going to unpack that a little bit more and say, if we are all priests, what are the duties of a priest? What are the duties? What does a priest do? So we find the answer to that in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 8. And this is what it says. At that time, the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the ark of the covenant of the Lord, to stand before the Lord, to minister and to pronounce blessings in his name as they still do today. So here it outlines three priestly responsibilities. We're to carry his presence or carry the ark. We're to bless the people and then stand and minister to the Lord, to worship the Lord. That's our priestly duty this morning and every day, to worship the Lord. So let's look a little deeper into each one of those. So that first thing, carry his presence. And in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19 and 20, it says this. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? who lives in you and was given to you by God. You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price, so you must honor God with your body. The Ark of the Covenant, as I said, has represented the presence of God. We are carriers of the Lord's 
presence. And just as the ark in the Mosaic tabernacle moved around with the people as they wandered through the wilderness, God's spirit, his presence lives in us, and we take that as we go out into the earth, as we move around and where we go. So our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, and part of that is stewarding that body, as our scripture says. We're to honor God with our bodies by caring for it. And I'll go into more detail in just a moment of this, but I do want to mention that the Hebrew word for tabernacle, mishkan, means dwelling. Right? The Hebrew word means dwelling. The Holy Spirit, God's presence, dwells inside of each one of us. And I don't know about you, but I want to be a great host for the presence of God. I want to host the presence of God well, care for it, get everything in order, in line, so that he can, we can host his presence well. So that first thing, we carry his presence. That's our job as a priest. The next thing is to bless the people, to bless the people. The Old Testament word for blessing is baraka. And baraka was the transmittal or endowment of the power of God's goodness and favor, usually through the spoken word and then often with the accompanying of act of laying on hands. So that was, that was what Baraka, what blessing translates in Hebrew. And this is a quote from the book, The Family Blessing by Rolf Garberg. And it says, the Hebrews believed that the spoken word carried great power for good or evil. Most ancient peoples were convinced, as the Hebrews were, that words once spoken take a life of their own. So when a word of blessing was given, the speaker could not retract it. The speaker could not retract that. So blessings are a big deal. Blessings are a big deal in our job as priests, especially in the times of the Old Testament. Think of the story of Jacob and Esau back in Genesis. When Esau comes in famished from hunting, from the fields hunting, and comes to, to Jacob, and he's making this, this sweet-smelling soup or stew, and he says, can I have a bowl of this? I'm hungry. I'm famished. And Jacob says, only if you sell me your birthright. And what does Esau do? It's crazy. He says, okay, <laughs> right? I mean, that is, how, how insane must that have been? But with that blessing, when, when Jacob went in to receive the blessing from his father, he received a double portion of his inheritance as the firstborn. So that was a pretty big, a pretty big deal. And then when Esau came in for that blessing, um, his father said, I can't take those words back. I can't take that back. I can give you a blessing, but not that blessing. So blessings are a huge deal especially in that Old Testament time. So parents, I pray and hope that you lay your hands on your kids and pronounce blessings on them especially. This is such a big deal. Kina and I, as we take our kids to school every day, we have a little thing we say back and forth that's a blessing uh, unto them because words are powerful and transform, transform who we are. And as I was studying for this message today, I've become even more aware of how powerful a blessing is. I've tried to incorporate it more even into our, our bedtime routine. And, and when I'm with someone at lunch, you know, if I can lay hands on them and say a blessing over them. Part of our, part of our job as priests is to bless one another. Proverbs also tells us that, that death and life are in the power of the tongue. So we want to speak blessings, speak life into, that, into our world just as that priestly duty states. And then our third thing this morning is to stand before the Lord and minister, to stand before the Lord and worship. And this is where we're going to spend a good chunk of our morning today, looking into how the Levitical priests worshiped through the tabernacle. That's what they did through the Mosaic tabernacle. And then, as I said, we're actually going to walk through that progression together. And hopefully this exercise gives some theological backing to why we worship the way we do. We can see a lot of parallels in the way we put our services together to this, to this Old Testament journey on the tabernacle. 
And before we jump in there, I do want to just outline some postures that we can have in worship. Uh, Colin Ray was, was kind enough, if many of you coming in may have got a, a bookmark that has the Hebrew words of praise on that. Um, if you're online this morning, you can also look um, at the centralhub.org and there's a link, a link to a PDF of that. But it just is going to outline here some of those postures that we can have in praise. Um, most of you probably know that the Old Testament was written in Hebrew and Ara- portions are in Aramaic. And our word praise and sometimes worship is translated into seven, commonly seven, different words or distinctions in the Bible. So we're going to look at just a few of those. And again, I'm hoping to, to marry that, that, that marriage of, of revelation and response and, and purpose and presence. So we learn the hows and whys. And then as we do this and, and, and interact with it, we experience just something new and fresh maybe to, to re, relive some of those, those things that we've done. So let's look at these words for praise. The first word is barak, and that means to kneel or bow in worship, prostrate, and or to fall down, and it can also be translated bless. Come let us worship, barak, or bless, some translations say bless, come let us worship and bow down, let us kneel before the Lord our maker. And if we look at that revelation response, why do we worship and bow down? Because he is the Lord our maker. He has created us. That's that revelation response. The second thing, yada, it's a thankful expression of praise with the hands extended. So when we lift our hands and extend our hands, that's yada. It's, it's, it's because I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. That's from Psalm 139. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. So the revelation, your works are wonderful. I praise you. And he's made us. That's why we extend and lift our hands. The third word, tauda. And that says thanks and praise for what God is going to do. It's a sacrifice of praise or a procession of worshipers like the choir that, that we see. All right? So and that comes from Psalm 68.4. Sing to God. Sing in praise of his name. Extol him who rides on the clouds. God is going to come back for us someday and ride in on the clouds. And that is we thank and praise God for what he is going to do. That's Tauda. Then this next one is my personal favorite, and it is zamar. And that means to praise God with your instrument. To play your instrument as a language unto God. I love that. We don't always need to be singing or verbalizing to be in praise. Sometimes the Lord, I mean, can fall on an instrument or a time, and, and you just know he's there. And it, it, there's a, a level of raw, awe and reverence that's happening. But we can praise God with our instrument. That's one of my favorites. And this comes from Psalm 108.1. My heart, O God, is steadfast. I will sing and make music with all my heart, all my soul. And then the fifth one, Shabak. And this means to command triumph and shout unashamedly. Shabak. And this is from Psalm 63. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise, or shabak, shout unto you. Then we have the sixth one, and this is hallel. And that means to shine, boast, celebrate, or be clamorously foolish, dancing like a fool. When David ushered in the ark, he, there, hallel, he danced foolishly before the Lord, but it was an act of praise, right? And this comes from Psalm 149.3. Let them praise his name with dancing and make music to him, with timbrel and harp. And there's something pretty fascinating about this particular word because it is the one that is translated the most in our, in our Bible. Hallel, shine, boast, celebrate, be clamorously foolish, dancing like a fool. I think it's over 165 times 
And when we're talking about praise, it has translated that particular Hebrew word. Just something to tuck back in there as we're worshiping this morning and in your response. And then um, number seven, Tehillah, spontaneous song of the Lord, a new song, a spiritual song from Psalm 40. It says, he put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise, a new song, a spontaneous song to our God. Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him. Amen. So as we move into a time of singing in just a few minutes, we're going to think about the revelation we've experienced. And if you feel led, um, look at these and, and maybe include those in your posture of worship. Again, it's knowledge. It's that purpose we have married with his presence as we do that. So we're going to go on an interactive journey this morning through the tabernacle. And I've been looking forward to this for a number of weeks as I've been preparing. I just really feel like God is going to honor our time and purpose as we've learned and as we experience his presence. There's just going to be something special about our time as we kind of look at this, at this progression this morning. So what we're going to be journeying through this morning is actually the Mosaic tabernacle. And this pattern was given to Moses in Exodus chapter 25 and 26. And here we find that the tabernacle is all about access. The tabernacle is all about access. God wanted to have access and dwell among his people. And as I mentioned earlier, the Hebrew word that we have um, for tabernacle is mishkan. And that means dwelling. And we, we find that in Exodus 25, 8 and 9. It says, then have them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. So God desired to dwell among his people. And in the Old Testament, only the priests could, could go into the most intimate levels of the tabernacle, the holy place, they called it. Only the priests could go there. But then when Jesus came along and died on the cross, the veil of the temple was torn that separated those places. And now we all have access. Remember, it's all about access into the holiest place for that most intimate relationship with God. And as we go through this journey, we'll see how Jesus clearly fulfilled this pattern of the tabernacle in every way. He fulfills it in every single aspect of symbolism um, that we see. And also, again, remember I said how significant that opening scripture was? Right here is where we see that. We are all priests having access to the most intimate relationship with God. Also throughout this exercise, you'll see that God is a God of process and order. God is a God of process and order. In verse 9, he said, make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. Exactly like the pattern I will show you. Here's a quote um, from How to Worship a King. And this, this book is by Zach Neese and one of my favorite books on worship. And I pull a lot of knowledge this morning from this book. And regarding process, he says this. We treat process with disdain in the church all the time. Sometimes for the sake of convenience. Sometimes for the sake of tradition. Sometimes out of ignorance, foolishness, or pride. But God is gracious. He covers us. But a wise person learns from such situations and honors the gift of life by submitting to the ways of the Savior. Especially in the Pentecostal movement, we can downplay liturgy sometimes. We can think it's mundane or boring. There's no life in it. But again, I want to go back to that marriage of purpose and presence. All throughout Scripture, we see the plan of redemption unfold um, as Christ in that New Testament perfectly fulfills the Old Testament law. God had a plan and a process He's not a God of chaos, but one of process and order. There was purpose in everything that he did. 
But today, I want his presence to bring life, joy, and excitement as we learn about this, pro- this progression and bring life to that purpose and order that we find. Just one quick example, when King David tried to move the Ark of the Covenant without doing it the proper way, just to illustrate how important this is, instead of four priests carrying it on poles, like was said to do, they used two oxen on a cart. And when that ox stumbled, Yuza reached out to keep it from falling, and he was struck dead. From what we can tell, David's heart and his motives were pure in moving the tabernacle. It brought blessing, or moving the Ark of the Covenant. It brought blessing, it brought favor to the community. He didn't know that, but the reason that they, they moved it that way, he just didn't know. So when they went back and done, did the research, they found out that, oh, you have to move it with four priests on the poles. And, and God honored that when they tried to move the, the, the tabernacle again. So we see that God um, is a God of process. He wants it done a certain way. But again, as that, that text said earlier, he is gracious with us as well. And then I just want to highlight the difference. There is a Mosaic tabernacle, and then David brought the Davidic tabernacle. And the Mosaic tabernacle outlined God's plan of redemption, and it is full of symbolism. And that was, that was temporary. It moved around with the people. David desired to bring a permanent dwelling to the, to the, the Ark of the Covenant and the place of God. And the, a, a key symbol and difference with David's tabernacle was the art of singing and music. We don't find singing and music often in the Mosaic Tabernacle, but David, he really he just kind of renaissance this, and he brought, brought singing and dancing and music and celebration. And you remember that Hebrew word Hallel, meaning to dance and be clamorously foolish, dancing like a fool. That marked the Davidic Tabernacle. So again, we're going to marry the, this purpose and presence this morning and start our journey. Are you guys ready? Let's do it. All right, so the first thing as we come to the the Mosaic Tabernacle we would find would be the gate, all right? The gate faced east and was the entrance to the outer courts of the tabernacle. It was the only way in. And you'll see this symbolism in just a moment, but let's first look at Psalm 100. It says, shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us and we are his We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. And let's read these two verses together this morning. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. For the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. And again, this is, this is David, and this would be characteristic of the Davidic tabernacle. So as we begin our journey of worship, we're going to give thanks and celebrate the Lord's goodness, his love, his faithfulness. But there's also a key piece of symbolism that is crucial to the tabernacle as we begin this process. And we find this in John chapter 10. And I'm going to skip down to verse 7 here this morning. It says, Therefore Jesus said again, Very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. So who is the gate? What does that symbolize? Jesus, right? Jesus is the gate. And the entire tabernacle in our process hinge on this revelation. It has to begin with Jesus. He is the only way. And we find that in in, in John, John chapter 10. 
So it takes relationship with Jesus to worship and acknowledge that he is that only way to have it. And then as we look at verse 4 again, it says, Enter his gates with thanksgiving and courts with praise. Give thanks and praise his name. And I just want to highlight a New Testament event that that reminds me of as well. It makes me think of the triumphal entry, right? We're just a few weeks away from Palm Sunday. And as Jesus entered the gate of the city of Jerusalem, what do we find the people doing? Praising, shouting, being exuberant in their praise so much that the Pharisees said to Jesus, rebuke your disciples, right? Rebuke your disciples. They're being foolish. But what does Jesus respond to them? He says, if they're quiet, even the rocks will declare and sing out praise. So as the, as the Pharisees were doing it, I think it's important here to realize that's how Jesus longed to be worshipped in that moment. He longed to be celebrated and rejoiced. And as we enter the gate, that's the first thing we do. We celebrate. We rejoice. We give thanks. We say, blessed is the king. Hosanna. Praise be to him in the highest. So from that even first point of entry into the tabernacle, we see how Jesus' life is the perfect fulfillment to this Old Testament process. And quickly, just want to note here, this isn't a focus, but I do want to say that scripture in John 10 also said, if you come in by another way, you're a thief and a robber. We can't shortchange the way we come to Christ. We have to come through Jesus. He is the only way to salvation, the only way to have relationship with the Father. So that's an important key as well from that John, from John chapter 10. Because John 14 says, no one comes to the Father except through me. So let's stand to our feet this morning as we begin this, this first section of the tabernacle. We're going to enter his gates with thanksgiving and joy and praise. And let's look also to that, that, that handout we have. Maybe, maybe think about incorporating a few of those postures in your worship this morning as we marry that process and presence. Come on, let's worship. Dwell here among us. Dwell here among us, God. House of the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can be seated this morning. You can be seated this morning. I pray that you are, are joy-filled and hope-filled as there is joy and God dwells among us. We've entered through the gate and now we are into the courts. So this is the outer courts of the tabernacle. And the next thing we'll come across is the, the altar of sacrifice. The altar of sacrifice. And this was made out of acacia wood, which was highly resistant to rot and decay. And then it was overlaid with bronze. And this is where the people would bring their offerings, their sacrifices to the Lord, which would typically consist of an animal um, or, or it was killed there. Um, they would bring their offerings, they would bring their animals, and they would tie them to the altar. And then as they killed them, they would sprinkle the blood on top and at the feet of the altar onto the horns. And this was representative of mercy, God giving his mercy. That's what those horns uh, represented. And then they would burn a portion of that offering as a sweet aroma to the Lord. So could we picture that for a moment? Think about that process, tying the animal as they killed it, sprinkling of the blood, and then burning that as a sweet aroma. It would be kind of messy, right? Pretty messy. And, and I think we can take this into our relationship with the Lord and our journey with the Lord as well. Um, worship, and I mean, and when I say worship, I mean our life of worship, not the singing piece of that. But, but worship, not just singing, it doesn't have to be clean. It doesn't have to be polished. It can be kind of raw and messy at times. And that doesn't mean that God doesn't have order. God has established order. There is a process to our worship. But it can be messy. It can be messy. Even as we look at the story of his life and how he used imperfect people, the process can be messy. 
But there's also a key thing to note here um, when we look at this section of the tabernacle. And I think it's so important. When people came to worship, they didn't come empty-handed. When people came to worship, they never came empty-handed. They always brought a sacrifice or some type of offering. And that almost seems backwards from our modern style of worship, doesn't it? Coming and bringing something to the Lord. I thought worship was for me. I was supposed to come to church and get filled for the week, experience God's presence, hear the message, and then I'm good for a week, right? No, that's, that's the opposite of what God is saying here. We come offering our sacrifice of praise to the Lord, right? We, come with, we don't come with empty hands. So if that's our way of thinking today, Lord, forgive us, me included. God, if that's we come to get something, Lord, forgive us as we come to worship that way. God, let us receive. Let us bring something to you. So we've made worship more about our preferences than the way our Lord desires to be worshiped. Because again, worship is for him, right? That's why we gather. Scripture tells us that the Lord is enthroned on the praises of his people. So when we gather, he is enthroned on our praises. So we need to make sure we're lifting praises that are worthy of a king to sit on, to enthrone upon, right? So just think about that as we worship. And then, again, what does God desire? If worship is about him, what does God desire? What sacrifice does God want? Let's look at Psalm 51. It says, the sacrifice that is pleasing to the Lord is a broken and humble heart. The sacrifice that is pleasing to the Lord is a broken and humble heart. And sacrifice takes humility. And with humility, there comes a cost, right? There's the cost of pride. There's the, pro- the cost of time or money, resources, With sacrifice, there is always a cost involved. And it also was the pure spotless lamb or bull. They didn't give the runt of the herd or litter. There was a cost. There was was something that that cost them, a value in that. In the story of 2 Samuel 24, David tries to buy a threshing floor um, to offer sacrifice to the Lord. And, And the owner of the field, Aruna, says that you can take all the oxen, all the wood. Here's everything you need for the sacrifice. Um, You don't pay anything for it. You can have it all. And what does King David say in return to him? I won't offer to the Lord that which cost me nothing. I won't offer to the Lord that's what cost me nothing. So there's a cost. And in that book I mentioned, Zach Neese says, if the cross proves how much we are worth to God, our worship proves how much God is worth to us. If the cross proves how much we are worth to God, our worship proves how much God is worth to us. So the next step in our journey this morning would be that offering of sacrifice at the altar. And again, we see we don't give, obviously, animal sacrifices anymore in the New Covenant. So Romans 12.1 outlays also that, Therefore, I urge you and brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to the God. This is your true and proper worship. So we're a living sacrifice. This is where we lay down our lives to God this morning. And we've already alluded that this points to Jesus as well as the Lamb of God, the perfect Lamb without spot or blemish, dying on the cross for our sins, that blood offering so that we could, we could be free and how that perfectly fit the pattern of the tabernacle, the Mosaic tabernacle. So I'm going to move in a few of these before we sing. Next we'll come to the brazen laver. This is our next article in the tabernacle. And this was a bronze bowl of water where we washed our hands and feet before you entered the holy place. And so remember, sacrifice was messy, all right? So this is where they came to clean. The, act, the altar of sacrifice handled the payment of sins, but now the brazen laver. This re- represents the continual washing and cleansing that come from the word of God. 
the continual washing and cleansing that come from the word of God. In Ephesians 5, we say, be made holy by the washing with water through the word. So the result of our washing in the word is holiness. We're made holy, right? And Hebrews tells us that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So that polished bronze that they used to make the brazen labor, um, as they used that, that was used to make mirrors back in, in the Old Testament during this time, during this period. And as the priests would look into the water or they were coming to clean, they could see a reflection of their face. Now, obviously, this was old bro, old-time mirrors. Like, it wasn't as clear as our mirrors today. So there was a reflection that they would see, kind of like looking in water. And as they washed in that, it, it, it would show them what they needed to clean, right? Where, where they needed to be cleansed. The Word of God has that same role in our lives today. The Word of God has that same role, washing us. As we submit our hands and feet to Him, the washing of the Word prepares us to go into ministry and prepares us for that relationship in the holy place. So again, submission, because submission and the act of sacrifice, they prepare us for what God wants to do to us in the holy place. That washing in the Word daily prepares our hearts and hands to minister and also hear from Him. It positions us to hear from Him as we're in His Word as well. So in, in just a moment, we're going to sing about, about this and the sacrifice that, that we want to offer something that's of worth, right? Something that's of worth and allow his word to wash us clean. So we'll sing that in just a moment. But we're going to continue on now. And, and up to this point, um, we've been, been hanging out in the outer courts. We're about to go into, into that holy place now. And unfortunately, this is as, as far as many believers go. They never make it into that holy place because they've brought their sacrifice They've been washed in the word, and then they feel good, right? I've been prodded enough to, to feel like I accomplished something today or in my worship, in my time, in, in who I am, and then, and then we continue on. But God has more for us. God has more for us. He wants to go intimate. He wants to see, we'll see in a moment, just be face-to-face. He wants that relationship, that personable, personal relationship, and I believe he has more. So, but as, as, this is also key to note that this is as far as the common person went. So again, that access that God gave us by dying on the cross, this was as far as the normal person could go until you were a priest. And now God has called us to priests. So the table of showbread, as we go into this, this section here, was also made of acacia wood. But up to this point, the articles were often covered in bronze. We see they were covered in bronze or brass. Now they're covered in gold. We've went into that holy place. They're covered in gold. There's more value here. And this holy place was, was contained, it contained two rooms that were divided by curtains, the veil. And the holy place and the most holy place were that, that next, next, next level. So we were in the holy place, the curtain separated the most holy place, or the holy place which, arch, which held the Ark of the Covenant. But on that table of showbread, we find that there were 12 plates and bowls and spoons that were all overlaid with gold. And on those plates were 12 loaves of unleavened bread that the priest would partake of once a week. This bread was also called the bread of presence and had to be consumed once a week. It had to be fresh every week that they only ate in the Lord's presence there. And the Hebrew word that translates showbread literally means bread of face. Bread of face. And this further signifies that God wants to meet with us. He wants to reveal himself himself to us, to commune with us, to have relationship with us, to dwell among us. He wants FaceTime with his people. John 6.35 also says, I am the bread of life, which again further brings that fulfillment of Jesus to this article in the tabernacle, the pattern we see. And then there's, of course, the obvious parallel here of the table of showbread to the Last Supper, the Lord's table. 
Think about that process of communion as we prepare our hearts, as 1 Corinthians tells us to do, to see if anything's inside of us before we come there. And that's because spiritual hygiene has to take place before spiritual intimacy. We've got to clean. We've got to, we've got to let the word wash us so that we can come and draw closer to the Lord. We can't jump in. There's that process. So there are also benefits to being face-to-face with God, right? There's benefits. He bore our grief and sorrow. He is wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. And what do we get out of that? Healing. By his stripes, we are healed. This is what that table of showbread all encompasses. The reminder of what communion is, the face-to-face intimate relationship we have with the Lord, and then embracing the benefits that are found in a relationship with him. So I pray this morning that we just don't get in a habit of taking communion just because it's, again, a tradition, but that we find the purpose. We find that, that as we ponder what Christ has done for us and, and he longs to be in relationship, communion, that's what that means. It literally means that, that we are becoming united, joining with God in relationship. So where there's that true intimacy, there is true worship. And what's kind of crazy here, if you think about it, the priests had been practicing the Lord's table or communion for for years, hundreds of years prior to to them, the disciples experiencing this at the Last Supper, right? They, They didn't have the full understanding of what they were actually doing. But as Jesus broke the bread and said, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. Imagine the disciples who had the knowledge of the tabernacle, what all those pieces meant, and seeing this live right before their eyes. What a powerful revelation that would have caused. So I pray that that we can come to that moment of reverence in just a few moments when we take the Lord's table together. And then we move into to the golden lampstand. So we find that this is in the the so that we find that this is directly across from the table of showbread this morning and this was the only light that was in that area, the only light in the holy place. It was also made of gold. But this time, instead of just being overlaid with gold, it was solid gold. It was hand-hammered. There was, there was that, that special touch on this. And this would resemble much what a modern-day menorah would look like, uh, just only much larger. Um, it had seven, seven lamps that burned olive oil, and the priests were instructed to keep these lamps continually burning. And the direct correlation here is pretty obvious, right? Jesus says in John 8, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. But there's also much symbolism in the other aspects of this. I just quickly want to highlight. It says the almond blossoms that are adorned on the lampstand, they could symbolize an awakening that we find in God's presence. Because the almond blossoms are the first trees to awaken from winter. The olive oil could represent the Holy Spirit that continually dwells inside each one of us. The flames that burn could symbolize the fire we see when the glory of God falls or the passion that's required to burn in us when we serve the Lord. But I think the most important aspect there, again, is recognizing the redemption of Christ and how that pattern is in here and seeing Christ as the light of the world. So in just a moment, we're we're going to take communion and we're not gonna take it all together. We're gonna allow this to be an intimate moment with you. I'll read a scripture here and just kind of outlay what we're doing. But then um, you can respond by sitting or standing as we sing and move into a time of music. But really want this to be, again, just as we have that bread of face, let God reveal, just think about the body and blood and Jesus, what he has done for us and how that relates to that table. But this is the scripture I'd like to read for us this morning. And it says in Hebrews chapter 10, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body, 
And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And you can see that direct correlation here in Hebrews to the tabernacle, what we've just walked through. So again, as we, as we take communion this morning, there's no requirement to be a member. We just ask that you have uh, a professed faith in Christ. And if you haven't done that, the scripture tells us to call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. Profess it with your mouth. Believe in your heart that Jesus was raised from the dead and God will give you eternal life. You can be in relationship with him, just like we're talking about. So again, as we sing, let's remember and let this be just an intimate time. Again, you don't have to stand. Just respond to the Lord in whatever way you desire this morning as we prepare to take communion. And again, you can take it whenever you feel led and it's on your heart this morning as we sing a little this morning. We have two more articles left this morning on our journey. And the next that we come to is the golden altar of incense. And this is also in the holy place. We haven't yet moved into that most holy place or the holy of holies. But the altar of incense was a box again made out of acacia wood and overlaid with gold. And this is where the priests burned the incense on the altar twice a day, morning and evening. And in Revelation 5, we see that this incense symbolizes the prayers of God's people rising. That's what this altar of incense symbolizes. It represents our prayers rising unto God. And I'll give you a little hint into next week's message. Pastor Jim is going to unpack this a little even further and talk about when prayer seems to go unanswered and talk about this passage in, 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 in Revelation chapter 5. So I'm not going to dig too deep here. I'm going to let him unpack that for you. But I do. I just want us, I just want us to, to think about those prayers rising and let it burn with passion. Just as the smoke of incense rises, we want the prayers of his people to rise unto the Lord. And it also says in Exodus 30 that, that this is where he will meet with us. Exodus 30, chapter 6, it says, Place this in front of the mercy seat that is over the testimony, and there I will meet with you. And this is where God speaks to his people. We find that we're moving into greater levels of God's relationship and his presence. And, and this is where the angel Gabriel spoke to Zechariah, saying, tell, 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 you will name your son John. You will have a baby and you will name him him John. That was at the altar of incense. That's where he said this. So we want our prayers to rise. We also want our spiritual ears to open to what God is speaking to us and meeting with us and desires to say. It's here that we often receive instructions from the Lord that spur us on with passion to serve and worship him. So let our prayers rise in this room today. Let it in our hearts as we find our priestly calling. Let that incense, let those prayers rise. And then finally this morning, we move to the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant rests. And the priests only entered this portion of the tabernacle once a year on the Day of Atonement. And they sprinkled blood on the mercy seat of the Ark that atoned for the sins of the people. And again, there was that thick curtain that separated this, the veil. And when Christ died, this veil was torn, again, representing the access we have to Christ as he, he sacrificed the perfect, spotless Lamb of God for our sin, this atoning sacrifice. And here the ark represents also the glory of God, the throne of God among his people. They often call it the throne room. And as we worship and long for God's presence, let this be our cry. Let us experience your glory. 
And I do want to make a quick distinction here about the omnipresence of God. We hear the presence of God a lot. The omnipresence of God is the God that is, or the presence that is always with us. He'll never leave us, never forsake us. He goes with us everywhere we go. But here we're, we're talking about the, the manifest presence of the glory of God. And this symbolizes the weight, symbolizes the weight. That word kabod, which stands for glory, it means weight or heaviness. There's no doubt when you experience God's glory. There's no doubt. He puts a weight on it. You feel it. You sense it. There's a heaviness. And, and when we encounter that glory, there is no denying it. So another distinction we find as well is that the Holy Spirit, God's presence, it often works uniquely in individuals. We know the presence of God is here and he's speaking uniquely to us. We're experiencing his power in a unique way. But whenever God's glory comes, scripture tells us that all flesh will see it together. So there's something unified about God's glory and we find that in Isaiah 40 chapter five. It says, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all people We'll see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. And this is what we see characteristic on the day of Pentecost, right? They all heard the sound of a rushing wind. They all saw what seemed like tongues of fire and were filled, all were filled with the Holy Spirit. Another example is on Azusa Street, where the fire company was often called um, because smoke was rising out of the building, right? And the fire company would respond, and there was no natural fire. They all saw it together. And this is the power of us carrying the ark. The God's presence resides inside of us, housing the presence. And as our opening scripture stated, he dwells in us. And it happens as we commit to him the purpose of learning how and why we worship, dedicating to that, seeking his face, and then his presence comes. And Lord, I long to see that. Church, I long to see that. I think God is moving powerfully among us and I'm believing for the day where we see God's glory in a very real, authentic way, experiencing miracles and the signs and the wonders and the presence that follows as his glory comes and fills this house. Lord, rend the heavens and come down. That's our, we pray that every Tuesday in a prayer meeting that gathers here. Lord, rend the heavens and come down. Let your glory fall your manifest presence, because that's also a sign for the unbelievers. They can't leave it like, surely the Lord is in this place. Surely the Lord is in this place. So I wanna close this with a time of singing as we go into this time of worship and just fight his glory here. But I wanna do that scripture, read that scripture again to just bring revelation um, from Hebrews 10 that we read for communion. And it says, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, feel it, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess because he who promised is faithful. He's made us priests, he wants to dwell with us. Could we stand as we just go into a time of worship, just allow his presence to minister among us. If you wanna respond at the altar, if you wanna just kneel and bow, just remember those postures as we just invite God, just let us sense your presence, let us sense your glory this morning.